Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today on the first episode for 2024 is Dr. Adam Fraser. Adam is a peak performance researcher, professional speaker, author and consultant. He first appeared on the Habits of Leadership podcast back on episode 18 and I am delighted to say that four years later he's agreed to come back on the show. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Good to see you again. It's been a while. Although I saw you in the Qantas Lounge in Melbourne, didn't I? You and your family? Yeah, we were both wrangling kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. joys of traveling with youngsters. But as you said, it has, it has, it has been a while since um, you're on the, the podcast. Four years to the day, pretty much, actually, as it happens as we're recording this. Oh, it's um, so, old. Yeah, November 2019. And, um, you know... When, when we last spoke, um, your book Strive was about to come out. Yeah. And of course, the world was about <laughs> to uh, to pretty much shift on its axis in terms of the way um, we lived our life for certainly, um, you know, two or three years. So I guess um, I'd like to kind of locate um, our conversation around your work, but also the manner in which you've been uh, been working and the, the way in which your work has been received and what people are reaching out to you for, you know, both sort of during um, the, the pandemic and, and obviously in the in the, the months and the years as, as it's kind of sort of coming out the other the other side of it. So but just for the benefit, actually, Adam, for those who perhaps haven't caught up with our um, previous episode, um, could you just bring bring them into the picture just a little bit about um, who you are and the kind of work that you do? Yeah, so I mean, look, my undergraduate was in uh, biomedical science, which is kind of a blend of psychology and physiology. And I always had a dream to work with elite athletes. And uh, I went to the AIS for a while. And um, actually, I hated it. It was a terrible job. So I had to go... um, you know, well, what am I going to do next? And the university offered me a scholarship to do my PhD. So I did that, which was, you had a couple of projects in it, but mostly it kind of looked at lifestyle intervention. How does it affect our quality of life, our levels of happiness, uh, even down to like cellular health? Uh, It was quite comprehensive. So from there, uh, businesses started to ask me to come in and talk to them about my research and what I was finding and I just kind of fell in love with presenting, fell in love with business and from there built, um, you know, the consultancy that I run today. And really I spend my time in three main areas. Like one is presenting, you know, you and I often see each other around the traps. Uh, And then the second one is doing research. So we partner with different universities to study business challenges. And the third thing is large scale interventions like, you know, the flourish movement, which we do with uh, school leaders. Um, we're currently doing a big research project looking at burnout within professional services firms. So that's kind of me and the the three parts to my working world. Mm. And, and back in, um, so November 19, episode 18, for those who want to um, go back and, and have a have a listen. We were talking a lot about, in fact, that the the, uh, the title of that episode was, um, you know, can you have it all? 
You know, the <laughs> idea that can you have oh, yeah. the life, you know, where it's all, where, can you be high performing in, in, for argument's sake, in a professional sense and have really high levels of, of well-being as well. And you might, may or may not recall, um, I was sharing with you, and I think that's where we got into like the sports space, mm. is that I'd recently attended um, an athlete well-being um, summit where someone had come out, I think, from the British Olympic Association and had said, essentially said, no, you can't. Mm. <laughs> it's either it's either one or the other, you've got to choose. And and they were sort of framing it, you know, like high performance starts where well-being ends. And <laughs> and and I'm, I'm really curious, uh, well, one, I'd be really interested to touch base with that person again now, post, you know, the past few years and just yeah. see how he's sitting with that now. But um, from your point of view, um, before we sort of just just again just to sort of round out for those to bring people into the picture of of you know the nature of the conversations we've had before when I say to you okay work-life balance or high performance and high levels of well-being how do you um, square that circle how do you reconcile those two things well it's a big question I mean I remember from our conversation I had the same point of view as that guy in terms of you know most of the athletes I worked with, we're a bit of a disaster in terms of they just have to be so selfish, so um, self-centered that it's really hard to have quite a balanced life. You've just got to go hard for that period of time and totally dedicate yourself. And something I see so often is uh, business people who are really driven and aspire to achieve great heights tend to get there and go, oh, crap, this was not as good as I thought it would be. And yep. yeah, I left a whole lot of a trail of destruction behind me and whether it's their mental health, physical health relationships. So I find it is very hard to be that elite, elite person without high levels of dysfunction. And one of the things in our research that we do really focus on is how do I be a high performer, but without all that collateral damage? Um, and, uh, personally, you know, when I first started out, I was really obsessed with performance and, you know, athletes and the CEOs and the, the Tony Shays of the world. And then the more I spent time with them or got into it, I just, I just kind of went, yeah, high performance is a bit of a big wank and that, you know, it, it, it's kind of lost its shine for me and I'd much I'd much rather focus on people who, hey, I want to have a really fulfilling career where I contribute and I make an impact. But at the same time, you know, I've got this well-rounded life and I've got really close people to me and, you know, my my world is functional. So I think, mm. yeah, I've kind of gone on a little journey there as well. Mm. And, is that, and, but it, yeah, is that on. not high performance though? Like is that for for me? You know, like the idea of um, almost redefining high performance could be. It's again, I keep framing it against the, the opportunity that the world had to kind of hit reset. Although, mm. as we were talk, as we were talking about uh, just before we went. Uh, on air it feels like the world has kind of ignored the opportunity to reset and it's yeah. just going a little bit crackers right now yeah. but um but um it's like you know the pandemic didn't get us our sack it we'll we'll, we'll you know we'll, we'll do it ourselves you know yeah, um, i think but, we've um, reverted and snapped back i mean mm. the pandemic had a huge impact on me i don't know mm. i don't know about you because if you think about our job 
it's let's get a bunch of people in a room, sit them really close together and interact, which is like not a good business model for um, the, you know, what we do. But what I found is that, um, you know, right out of the gate, I had a proper breakdown. Like I just flipped out. And, uh, you know, I think the first three days of when it – you know, when it really hit, like obviously there was a, a kind of slow little burn and then everything was like, everything's getting shelved. We had 2020 was going to be our biggest year. We'd been working on projects for like three or four years to get them up and running and then they got put on hold. And I went into a really, you know, deep, not a depression, but man, I was floored. And actually the first three days I sat on the lounge in my board shorts, drinking wine out of the bottle and watching Tiger King. (laughs) That is a great picture you've just painted for us. (laughs) And I think it was day two, my wife came in and said, uh, is this like a long-term plan? (laughs) And I just went, just give me one more day. And I just needed those couple of days to really grieve and just all that effort, all that time, all that like, you know, just – so much excitement about the year I had to let go of. And then I was like, all right, I'm getting this shit back on track. And we actually did extremely well through the pandemic, you know, from a revenue perspective, uh, we were similar to what numbers we would normally do. So we actually handled that really, really well. Um, So we were kind of lucky in that phase. In terms of um, just coming back to the idea of, of, perhaps redefining high performance because I I wonder so if we take the athlete for example and they go you know what I'm just going to go all in here and I am going to make those sacrifices and there is you know there there is a a selfishness and I'm not using that as a pejorative phrase I'm just saying there has to be this sense of controlling what you know what they can control and being uh, focused on that Um, but for most athletes that's quite a finite um uh, proposition yeah whereas in the corporate sense if people adopt that approach i mean of, of course it's finite because life is finite but yep. it's a lot bigger yeah, right it's it just, a, long, it can, a longer it, trajectory yeah um look i mean with the athlete thing you do have to go all in however i remember talking to liesl jones about the fact that you know she started to have more balance in her life. Like she was doing a beauty course. She was like starting to dabble in business. And what she said is she said, well, she felt her performance got better because she had things outside of the pool. Um, You know, having worked with one of the NRL teams, one of the challenges we had with them was boredom. You know, you know, they train in the morning, they train in the afternoon during the middle of the day, they got time to themselves. Um, So like, yeah, definitely those athletes have to go hard for that period of time. But I think when you look at business, finding people who have more well-roundedness in their life, you know, it's it's definitely the way to go. And, you know, when, when their career starts to diminish or they start to move away from that, they've got so much more to turn to. So yeah. I, I, I feel that yeah, and we come back to your point of well, what is high performance and do we include relationships and meaning and purpose and connectedness to that, not just the position we hold. So mm. I, I think we have to rethink 
high performance. After COVID, I definitely did. You know, I'm working less than I would normally. Uh, I'm much more present in the home, uh, much more involved in my family from a time perspective. I've started to introduce hobbies. Probably the best thing I've ever done is, you know, started to have hobbies, like Mm -hmm. interests that are outside of work because I just kind of had work, my family and fitness. That was really it. That were the three elements of my life. And now that I've got hobbies, it just adds so much richness richness to my life. And I think it makes me a better presenter and a better leader and, yeah, all sorts of things. So I think our new definition of high performance coming out of COVID is a more balanced one. Which leads us then... I think to that, so that's where we kind of, I mean, obviously you've just mentioned they're coming out of COVID. We, we, we rounded out our last conversation just before going into yeah. COVID and, and, and just at that, right at the end, it was like saying, okay, and I, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting you back on to talk about your book strive. <laughs> and, and um, obviously it's been a while since it's been out. And one of the things that um, really resonates with me and, and some of the, the, the conversations I have around, um, around the, the the sort of uh, nature of, of of what you discuss in that and you kind of touched on it a little bit there as well is um well the pursuit of goals in general um and i think you framed it before like a lot of people are pursuing goals and their their mindset around those goals isn't quite right so when they achieve their goals they kind of go oh <laughs> that's it yeah you know and and it, and it it's kind of has the opposite effect of what they were hoping it was going to have so I'm curious if we could just talk a little bit about um you know we hear a lot about thriving right yep. <laughs> you know, thriving's everywhere at the moment post-covid um yep. what does it mean to strive yeah well two things occurred for us to write the strive book one was we started to look at goal, like goal orientation or goal achievement. And you can break a goal down into three parts. You've got, you set the goal. So you outline what you're trying to do. You then work hard towards the goal, which we call the strive. And then you achieve the goal. So we said to people out of this process, what is the most fulfilling part And everyone kind of looked at us weird and went like, you're really asking that question? Of course, it's the achievement. Like the only reason I do this whole process is to get the results. So retrospectively, when they thought about goals, that's what they came up with. But I mean, you and I know that people's recall of how they felt in the past is terrible. Like we're so inaccurate. So what we did then was a real-time study where we got people to Uh, set a goal, work towards it, achieve it. And we got them to keep diary entries about how they felt at different points of the journey. And what we found is when they achieve it, there's a moment of elation, but then very quickly they fall into a period of flatness, which we call the completion myth. You described it before, like I achieved this goal and I'm like, oh, wait on, that wasn't as good as I thought it would be. And this was universal. Like people have sold their businesses for hundreds of millions of dollars to gold medalists coming back from the Olympics thinking, oh man, life's just going to be this great, amazing thing. And But people cared for a week and then it was kind of back to normal. And so what we found is that people said the strive was the most fulfilling part. It's you know where I, I didn't want to train, but I turned up and I 
gave it everything or I had this setback or I had this injury or something went wrong with the project and I overcame it. So what we found is the strive was the most fulfilling part, but weirdly, the parts of the strive that were the most fulfilling had the highest level of struggle and challenge attached to it. So that was the first piece. The second piece was we were studying flow. And now flow is obviously when you're in the zone and it's made up of a state where you have high level of skill needed, you have high level of challenge, you have high level of engagement, um, and also you have high level of interest. And finally, time seems to sort of disappear. So they're the five characteristics of flow. But what we found, what people said is the stuff that makes me grow the most and upskills me is, has like high level of skill needed, high challenge, time distorts, but low level of interest and low level of enjoyment. And we were like, wait on, that doesn't make sense. And But what they came back with is they said, well, it's the stuff that I I know I should do, but I don't want to do and is really challenging and scares the hell out of me. That's when I really accelerate my evolution. So it's almost like, oh man, I know I've got to do this thing, but I'm scared of it. I don't want to do it. But if I throw myself into it, the version of me that comes out the other end is just much more evolved. So that were the two things that caused me to write the book Strive. Mm. Does that hold true? And I think you're kind of touching on it there. So um, does the striving hold true for all types of goals? So what I mean by that is goals which perhaps have, um, I don't know, like been set for me, <laughs> you know, like a lot of companies might give you targets or um, teachers get sort of PDP goals, which are yeah, yeah. kind of, you know, they're supposed to be their goals, but let's be honest, they're kind of not. Um, or or is, is the strive more rewarding if I've intrinsically set the goals, like it's really in line with my why? Or, or yeah, how, how does that play oh, out? Man, that's a brilliant question. I love that you asked that. It, it, it's easier to strive towards something that you deem as like important, beneficial, engaging, but in terms of a growth perspective, there was no difference between the intrinsic ones and what's been imposed on me. Really what it is, is what builds that growth is we're kind of thrown in the trenches. We've got to fight it out. And when we crawl out the other side, we're just a more evolved version of ourselves. So even if it was like we're working on a project and suddenly funding's pulled or suddenly my the amount of resources I have is cut and I've got to step it up and somehow make it work, like that leads to massive levels of growth and, and self-esteem and worth, even though it was kind of like, yeah, I didn't choose that, but my ability to, well, the fact that I stepped up and handled it, that makes me grow and also gives me self-esteem. So, yeah, brilliant question, but it, it worked regardless. And, and, you know, when you're talking about having to step up and, and meet that challenge, talk to me a little bit about that, some of the things that people might report then at that, at that tipping point where they're not quite sure and, you know, like how do they, how do they guard against actually um, not going over the edge, so to speak, in terms of stepping, you know, managing that yeah it's really hard and there's no like um 
You know, I don't know who who actually came up with it. Remember, there's like a, a model that's three concentric circles and the middle one's your comfort zone. The mm-hmm. um, the second circle is stretch your stretch zone. zone yeah. And the yeah. third one is your stress zone. Yeah. And what we found is um, regard like even going into that stress zone often uh, created, you know, that, huge growth and huge levels of self-esteem where it's like you go into something and you think there's no way I can pull this off. But when you do, it's even more rewarding. Now there are obviously, I mean, we're talking about very complex things here and there's no hard or fast line. There are some things that you take on and you kind of get your ass kicked and you lick your wounds and you, you try it again. But it's so many people say you've got to stay in that stretch zone. Don't stretch yourself too far. And obviously, like you don't want to put yourself in situations where you know you're crippled by anxiety or or, or stress. But what we found is that line's not as defined as we thought in the past. And I remember, you know, one of the biggest developments for me is when I had to speak at the Dalai Lama conference and you know there's 7,000 people in the room the Dalai Lama's there like the front row's got all my heroes it's Carol Dweck, Ed Diener, you know Todd Cash, Dan all these psychologists that I really respected I'm about to walk out and present to them and as I'm walking out I'm thinking I, I'm going to project I'll vomit on the front row like, you know, I was so out, like I was so stressed. It was ridiculous. Like my, my hands were shaking and, and I went out there and I crushed it. Like I nailed it. And, you know, at that conference, I got rated the highest speaker, you know, like the best session. And after that, I was just like, holy crap, how did I do that? And, and that was way beyond kind of my stretch zone but because I handled it it was just like it it, it just gave me so much confidence and and so much growth so yeah Yeah. that line's not as defined as what we often represent it to be yeah yeah so if I was working with you Adam right and and you just said that to me yeah what I would say is so tell me how did you do that you know and and how did you do that if you, you 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 had those feelings that, that you know you could projectile vomit i don't know how much is that is just the, the for theater for the podcast or how how genuine no, no, it was, no, but it was I, genuine yeah i can imagine yeah. i can imagine and the shaking but yeah. you've gone out there and you've crushed it yeah. how did you do that well i mean look the preparation was huge and you know it was something that i'd practiced over and over again so i'd put in the work so i knew i knew it i just had to hold it together and you know another concept that I've developed and did in our research is the concept of the third space. Like how do you transition from one thing to another? And, you know, backstage I was just, well, using a combination of that and act therapy, which is of course you're freaking out. It's normal to freak out in the past. You have been really nervous and still delivered, but then I very much focused on what do I want to like, how do I want to show up? And it was much more about, okay, put your ego aside, stop worrying about trying to impress your heroes. There's 7,000 people in the room that need your message. You know, and, and, you know, what I focused on is the contribution I wanted to make or how people, I wanted people to walk away and feel differently. 
when they walked out of that room. So, you know, it was a combination of it's okay to feel like you're feeling because that's really, really normal. So it wasn't like, holy shit, you shouldn't be nervous, far out, calm down. If you're nervous, you're going to screw it up. It was that acceptance of, of course, you're freaking out. (laughs) Like there's no other way to be right now. And then it was very quickly forget about yourself, focus on what 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 are the gifts you want to give this group right now? How do you want to challenge them? What do you want them to do differently? Yeah. So I think that was how I did it. Yeah. And also yeah, like half a bottle of vodka out back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know what, up, up until that point, <laughs> up until the point I was going, nah, you definitely didn't do that. But then with the vodka, oh no, you definitely <laughs> did that. <laughs> um, but what I love I love what you've sort of mapped out for people there um, is that, you know, whatever their version of that moment is, and everyone has those moments, yeah. whether it's, for you it was 7,000 people and, and Carol Dweck, you know, and the Dalai Lama. For others it could be one person. Yeah. Um, but it's it's like a critical conversation they need to have or it's a negotiation or it's a difficult classroom or whatever it might be. But what the, the, there were things that you um, said there which, um, for example, let's um, recognise it's okay to feel like this. Yeah. In fact, it's... I actually frame it sometimes. It's advantageous to th- feel like this yeah. because it means it's important and it's going to just give me the that sharpness. It's going to give me that focus. I'm not. There's no way I can be complacent if I'm feeling like this, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that and and then doubling down on the fact that I've done the work. I've done the prep. I don't think any amount of posit- positive self-talk helps if you've not put in the reps. Exactly. <laughs> in fact, it, it yeah. compounds the problem. Yeah. But then and but then that third piece, which I thought was really interesting, was let's focus on the others yeah. now. So it's not it's not about me here. It's actually about these people. So yeah, for anyone, <laughs> anyone listening who ever has these moments, I just think the idea of accept it because it's normal. Mm. And actually I'd say it's an advantage Two, as long as you've done the work yeah. and three, make it about others. I'm not saying that's a cure-all, but I think if you can practice that, um, you know, it's, it's a really useful tool that I think you've inadvertently just kind of shared. Yeah, and look, I... As you pointed out, that's a pretty extreme example presenting in front of 7,000 people, but it could be a hard conversation. It could be, I have to tell my partner that I'm unhappy in this relationship. It could be, you know, it's all those things. And a mate of mine's uh, was in the SAS. Keith Fennell is his name. He's an incredible individual, like amazing soldier. He wrote a couple of books and, you know, he tells me stories about the things that he had to do and you just can't even fathom them and I said what's the most what's the bravest thing you've ever seen someone do and I'm thinking you know like charge the enemy or do something he said my wife got her bronze medallion I'm like what and he said well she was terrified of the ocean and she had to train and she had to do a swim in the ocean and she was terrified of it and he said I just watched her handle that and do it. And he said, it's just one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. And and that's the th- thing we often judge. Oh, was it this, you know, amazing, was it the Olympics or was it this or was it that? But it's just, you know, those regular day moments of bravery are just, are just as important too. Yeah, everyone has their own edge. Yeah. Right. And, totally. and, and nothing, yeah. yeah. And being, being okay with what that edge is, brings and then knowing that if you can look over it or step into it that the what that's one way I think I interpret some of your work is that saying that's 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 what we're talking about Mm. you can't I think I'm right in saying but you can't 
you're not really striving if you're not at your edge. Is that fair? Well, I mean, there's different levels of striving, certainly. Like there's there's definitely a spectrum. And I think what the message is, well, there's two messages. Number one, we don't want to be constantly striving and pushing ourselves. So striving is not I'm I'm you know on the edge of burnout and I've got to you know push myself if I'm not exhausted I'm not trying hard enough like obviously recovery and well-being and time out and disconnection is really important but I think the main message is striving is a spectrum but also going right to the edge is actually good for us too yeah I mean we're not talking about trauma here or horrible things happening to us it's no, no. Like we call it growth-centric struggle. Like it's struggle we choose or struggle we're put in that requires us to grow. So how much of this is an individual commitment and how much of this relies on the environment um, being right for us to strive? Because I could imagine in some environments, you know, what one person striving is another person's nightmare yeah. just because of the people around them or the or the objectives or or the consequences or yeah yeah look or I just think, the narrative yeah i think context is king in terms of it's the environments you find yourself in and you know for some people as you said it is their nightmare but someone else might be comfortable with it I th- yeah, I don't really know how to answer that question. I don't think I've got a very good answer to it. Yeah. Um, Let me ask, I'll try a different way because I don't know if I actually asked it as well as I might either. What I guess a lot of the time we kind of frame mindset or motivation or someone's willingness to, you know, keep at it as a, as a you thing. You need to turn up more determined. You need to be more motivated. You need to have the right mindset. Yeah. And I'm... well I have a very clear opinion on this Um, which and I'm not and it is only an opinion so that's why I'm curious to hear from someone who's actually done some research in it um how much of that is just bullshit (laughs) and and how much of it is actually well I could absolutely turn up with a growth mindset and be ready to go all in but if I'm surrounded by whatever I might be surrounded by a toxic environment or people undermining me or people who are not quite making me feel part of the tribe or, um, you know, I've been told that, you know, yeah, have a go, but make sure it's right. You know, like talk to me a little bit about that. The environment has to be conducive to striving. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So much. And, and the people around us, our environment has a huge influence on this. And, you know, you and I see a lot of motivational speakers and, you know, this is a general, you know, the, the story speaker, like, you know, I climbed Everest or I, you know, survived this horrible thing. And what I found really interesting is most of their stories are, I did this, I survived that, look at how amazing it was, it was my can-do attitude. But then when you get to know them and talk to them, what you realise is, yeah, there were so many people around them supporting them. But on stage, that's not a great story. Or, God, I was reading something the other day, like I think it was over 40% of billionaires are billionaires because their parents were billionaires. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. Or even, it's, like, uh, was it um, the guy that 
started Amazon. You know, his parents gave him 300 yeah. mil or something like that to kick yeah. it off. Whose parents yeah, haven't? Yeah. Whose parents <laughs> haven't done that, Adam? Yeah, Come exactly. On. Yeah, yeah. My <laughs> my Scottish motor mechanic grandfather. Uh, uh, sorry, father. He he he. You know, he had so much. He's just holding out on you. He yeah, just holding out on you. Yeah, yeah. So I think like <laughs> what we often hear from these type of speakers is it's all down to me and my amazing attitude and what they fail to recognizes how much their environment has helped them or even the fact that they're you know an educated white dude you know like you've just you you've won the genetic lottery you know like you're ahead of the game anyway so yeah the environment's critical and whether we've got people that are trying to sabotage us or pull us down or even I'm working with a leadership team at the moment of a big tech company. You know, they're like a multi-billion dollar company. They're a serious group of people. And, you know, just watching them, they're going through a transformation. So you talk about struggle and striving, they've got it in boatloads. Like they're in the trenches hard. And what I'm noticing is that this they're, they're killing it, but they're killing it because they've come together as a group. They've got each other's back. They're giving each other support. They're having hard conversations. They're pointing out when they're out of alignment. You know, the only way that group is making progress is because as a group, they've, they're striving together and they're evolving. And it's not down to one individual. It, it is that collective. So I think your point of the environment, the context – it's just so important. And I think we forget how important it is because the hero's journey is a lot more sexy than, oh, well, you know, it was a whole team of people that enabled yeah. this to happen. Like one environment that we spend, um, both of us spend a fair bit of time in is in the education space. Yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned just uh, before about the Flourish um, program that you have for school leaders i'm curious um to hear how you're sort of observing those um the people you're working with there predominantly obviously as you said school leaders um in what has now been acknowledged by the departments uh, around the country as being somewhat um strained should we say with teacher shortages and um you know all manner of um uh, different challenges there when we talk about striving then we talk about you know constant change um because education seems to be the, you know always changing you know curriculum different uh, policies ways of teaching yeah. policies etc cetera, etc cetera. um talk to me a little bit about what you're noticing particularly as schools have kind of come back from the uh, the pandemic way of educating online learning and just some of the conversations you're having around that. What are, what are school leaders talking about? What's front of mind? What's keeping them awake? Um, you know, when it comes to creating environments where people can be their best, both kids and and the staff. Yeah, well, big question. So just to give people context, Flourish is a program where we put groups of school leaders together, twenty five to thirty at a in a group. We get Deakin University to study them 
on a really deep level. So they fill out surveys to measure various psychological constructs, but they also do a 10-day diary study where they're like prompted throughout the day to answer questions and then they have a debrief interview with a researcher. And the diary study and the interview, usually that's not done on this group. Like the majority of research on school leaders is they send out a survey send it back. The problem with surveys, like we talked about before, you, you fill it in retrospectively. How did I feel about that? Or And we're just really inaccurate. So we get them to do it in the moment. So our data is often a lot of, is quite different to other people's data because it just goes a bit deeper. So we then work with them for a 12-month period. They get one workshop per term over a 12-month period, and then we remeasure them at the end. Now, what we did is we actually co-designed it with principles. So we sat in a room with them and went, all right, here's our plan. Tell us. And some of them went, oh, that's shit. Cut that. Or that's not practical. Or we'll never get to that. Or here's what you're forgetting. So we actually designed it together. But what we also designed was um, behavior change interventions. So, you know, they get a buddy that they talk to each week that keeps them accountable. You know, they get all sorts of reminders of concepts. So like it's a whole process they go through and it's been incredibly successful in terms of behavior change. And we've analyzed it and what we put it down to is the reason they change so much is group dynamics. Because we put them in a room, we get them to have really vulnerable conversations where they share what's actually going on for them. They come up with solutions. They support each other. And it's almost like the group gives the leaders permission to actually start doing some of this stuff. And yeah, this ranges from well-being things to how do I control my environment better? How do I have boundaries? You know, uh, how do I get clear on my strategy and what sort of culture I want to have? And by far, the most important part of that is is the group connecting and supporting and giving each other permission. So, you know, what I see is that group dynamics is just vital. But these people are so busy, they rarely come together. And so many of them say, man, I've never had these sorts of conversations with other school leaders. Because we normally talk about systems and process, curriculum, policy, this is the first time. So what you're saying about group dynamics is absolutely bang on because it's really, really important. What are some things I'm seeing? Uh, look, number one, if you give these people support, time to think about it and accountability, they make incredible levels of change. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but just school leaders are the most impressive group I get to work with. I just think they're phenomenal people. Number one, it's the toughest gig we've ever seen in 25 years of research. Like you talk about a hard job, man. That thing is so hard. Um, what are some of the trends I'm seeing or, um, do you know, and re- this might be a bit left field, but Something that keeps coming up is they're saying, since COVID, my staff don't want to go the extra mile. And I'd love to get your perspective on this too, because like you've got your finger on the pulse on this one. My staff don't want to go the extra mile, meaning they won't attend that thing outside of school or they won't, um, you know, work themselves 
till late at night. And and like actually, I'm going to ask you a direct question. I think education only exists because of extra discretionary effort. Like the only way you that works, I've literally just written that word down. Look there, oh your discretionary God, I effort. I just literally- people listening. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the only way it works because it's such a hard job. There's so many initiatives being launched. There's so much workload reporting that the only way schools work is if people work excessively. And what the leaders are saying is now my staff just go, no, not doing it. And there's going to come a time, there's going to be a tipping point where those people who are willing to work excessively are going to leave and you're going to be left with a group who are much more likely to say, yeah, I'm not doing that or that's too hard or, yeah, you know what? You can't have that report because I just don't have time to do it. And I just wonder how the model of education is going to go when it's primarily full of people who are being more realistic about their workload. Mm. Like what's your thoughts on that? I I would, um, first of all, I would concur um, with it, that is that is everywhere, yeah. right? So that, like when you said it's a bit left field, I think it'd be left field if you weren't actually in, like, you know, if you weren't in there, yeah. you, you might think, oh, that's a bit left field. But when you're there, everyone's, every school leader is is talking about this. Like, we just can't get, we just can't get the people to run the club now. We can't get people to go on camp. Yeah. Um, you know, all, all, all manner of things. And, and you're right, that that's why I jotted down that, you know, schools survive, schools survive on goodwill and discretionary effort yeah. right and and i think when i used that word about um resetting um before um because of the, the pandemic my my take on it is that um a lot of people had the opportunity to stop right yeah. and and essentially imagine the frog in the boiling water they had the opportunity actually to turn the turn the <laughs> gas off right and turn the gas off and let the water cool down I go hang on what the bloody hell's going on here like you know it turns it turns out like you know i've got i've got my own kids yeah. you know to 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 talk to or to wor- 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 you know worry about or go and see their netball mm. final as opposed to to what and just to be clear i'm not saying it's right or it's wrong but what i am suggesting is that people had the opportunity to hit reset and go oh hang on you know why why am i doing this um and and the education system generally i would say hasn't responded accordingly they've just got they've just gone back to let's turn the hob back up to where we were right and it's too hot right people go whoa 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 and 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 i think that's then compounded by obviously the obvious shortage now which for years let's be clear for years um there was a head in sand attitude about from the department no one was allowed to public acknowledge it and because we weren't publicly acknowledging it we weren't addressing it um and so that's then and then you've got obviously like i have today a cop a bit of the covid so all of a sudden i can't come in and so mm. you can't get casual teachers you can't do that and and yeah i just feel like it's this bit of a melting pot where um i i feel that there was the opportunity to rethink some stuff but for whatever reason and and i you know i can 
I will say the department, that big monolithic, you know, <laughs> almost ethereal being, yeah. um, perhaps hasn't been as nuanced in um, in the way it's re reintroduced face to face schooling. I don't think perhaps they've had. Um, enough awareness of how people have changed uh, let me give you an example of what i mean by people have changed what well, well, what well, since you asked me um, <laughs> um is you know like I, I we do a lot of thinking um and reflection around self-determination theory and we sort of tweak it a little bit so we include things like belonging um into that we talk about obviously autonomy we, we use dan pink's words of um mastery and and purpose uh, as opposed to competence and relatedness but when we think about that and we think about it um like as a if you can imagine it as a a circle you know of four equal parts mm. not that, not saying that they're equal but that's for the sake of this belonging autonomy mastery purpose the the past couple of years shrunk that for everyone right yeah. you, you couldn't get together and so think about purely about education, right? We couldn't get together, so we didn't have that that tribiness um, in the classroom, in our class, in our classroom, mm. with our people, with our kids. Right? We didn't have that. We didn't have a sense of autonomy. Obviously, we couldn't even choose how many rolls of toilet paper we could <laughs> buy. So the autonomy was shrunk, and people, as you would, you know, we act quite irrationally, right? When our autonomy shrunk, I, I you know, I often talk about one of the core. Um, pillars of the decision to move to australia was i would always have the autonomy to get back to england yeah. whenever i needed whenever i wanted yeah. it could now it was know, taken whenever. away but boom yeah. yeah and it's taken away and and you don't necessarily realize it but it chips away at, at, at all manner of things almost like your foundation right uh mastery there were loads of kick-ass teachers in the classroom who really struggled teaching online oh, and then yeah and Just, then purpose right yeah why do teachers go into teaching? Well, it's not to enter data into spreadsheets, and it's not to beat Finland or Singapore in the in the standardised test scores. It's it's to see kids' faces light up, and it's really hard to see that on a Zoom call mm. or in a Google Doc. Yeah. And so, so what I sort of visualise on the on the screen when I'm chatting is is the shrinking of that circle, and to think and and people have shrunk. In, and I know that they're very theoretical, very hypothetical, so to speak. But and 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 I feel that as w what grows back quicker is perhaps well the purpose. I've got a bit of time to think now about different things. I, my, as my autonomy grows back, I'm realizing that I can exercise that autonomy in different ways, i.e., by saying no. You know, yeah. um, it's it's the belonging. I think as. One, uh, I'm on a bit of a monologue here, but you know another another one that we've noticed, which is quite interesting, is that most of the new teachers. So as we're talking before we went mm. on air, you know, we do a lot of new teacher coaching. Most of the new, well, all of the new teachers um, didn't do pracs, right? They 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 weren't in school, um, or they certainly weren't in tutorials talking about pedagogy and education with other people. And so when they're put in a real life situation in schools they've they've not got they've not got the experience of talking about their craft yeah uh analyzing their craft and and yeah it's a real interesting um i think there's a real interesting um group of um factors which are all playing into this over and above the fact we don't just have enough we just don't have enough teachers yeah man <laughs> I love that way you just described that. Like that's – we could spend a lot of time that shrinking 
is something I've never thought about but is so relevant. Yeah, I mean, God, the world, I mean, we were talking about this before we press record. Just what I said is I just feel like the world's changed but I don't know how exactly and I don't know how I fit into it but it's shifted dramatically. And, you know, if you think about that period, like we did a lot of research during COVID. Like we were, and and I'm talking, we surveyed parents, we surveyed staff, we surveyed leaders, you know, about how schools handled that time. And like this this number sounds ridiculous, but 99.3% of parents thought that their school did an outstanding job during that time. Like, so you got a few cynical people, but effectively like 100% of people just went, oh, that, they were amazing. And I think what COVID showed is what schools can do when everyone gets out of their way. And when everyone gets out of their way, they crush it. Like they're so capable. I mean, the school leaders we work with in Flourish, the amount of skills they have is frightening. Like they're just so good at so many things because the job's so diverse. And But what's happened is one of the things that allowed that, and our data actually showed stress of school leaders went down over COVID because they had a single focus. Parents weren't on site. They, um, you know, in terms of reporting and and so many things that they normally had to do were taken off the table and they're just like, I've got this one focus and they just killed it. Like they're amazing. So I think what's happened is we haven't learned from that period. And we were working with a couple of schools about, well, what happened to your culture in that time and how do you keep that living on? Because most of them said, Man, I've never seen us work better than that period. Like, and even some of the leaders said, man, even the pain in the asses got on board. So the people that usually complain about everything just rolled their sleeves up and, and just got on with it. And also, like they said, so many people stepped into leadership positions who weren't leaders, but they were good at something. So they, But no one went, oh, that's my turf or don't, you know, why did they get that? It was just, we've got this real important meaning and purpose. How do we achieve it? They, so politics got put aside. They focused. And, you know, I'm talking to a couple of schools about the fact that since that time, you know, we cut so many things out, but they've all been added and then some. And they're literally talking about, well, what are we going to stop doing moving forward? We're, we're all too stressed. We're all overwhelmed. Our workloads are blowing out. What are we going to say no to? And they're in the process of going, yep, this isn't happening anymore or I'm not doing that. And a good mate of mine, and you'd know him too, Simon Breakspear, who's brilliant, he talks about this concept of pruning like what are we what are we taking away and this is something we're not doing very well and we're not doing in the corporate world too that leadership team i'm working with are going through a massive transformation but they've just added that on top of their workload so they've just effectively doubled their job so i think you know the department's got to look at this schools have got to look at it and go if this model is going to continue what are we going to start culling what are we going to get what are we going to take away because when that happened, the school just worked like 
Oh, such an efficient machine. One of the things we noticed was, uh, you know, like we were saying, you know, what can we carry on doing that was going well is, so one of the, one of the things um, would be, and this wasn't necessarily exclusive uh, across all schools, but certainly a lot were doing, um, was check, you know, checking in with the staff, yeah. you know, on, on a Zoom call or a Teams call, not talking about work, but just checking yeah. in, how you going, you know, um, like I, I, I always sort of flippantly sort of say, you know, I, I was at, how are you? And I was actually asking you because I cared, yeah, yeah. not just as it was a greeting, you know, how are yeah. you? Um, it's like, no, how are you? And and one of the things we heard a lot of in the first few uh, months back was, oh yeah, it's really hard to get people together. Now we're all back together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like they've come back together yeah. on site and now it's back business as usual and they're passing each other in the corridor and not really having time to just, hey, how are you going? How was your weekend? Yeah. How are the kids going? Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, people might say, well, you know, you're there to do a job, but I'll always argue that, that that's that whole piece of the belonging um bit that we're talking about you know i think it's um yeah i think there's that busyness takes um, away the human stuff yeah and we, we yeah. were doing some research during covid in in corporations as well and what we were measuring two things connection to team well three things connection to team connection to organization and connection to leader and what we saw is connection to team and organization dropped because they just weren't physically there. But connection to leader spiked, like it had a huge uplift. And what it came back to is what you just described then is leaders got on and for the first time went, hey, Dan, when this meeting finishes, mate, can you just stay on? You stay on, it's just you and me. And I just go, hey, mate, just checking in, how are you doing? And Dan goes, yeah, I'm all right. And the leader went, nah, mate, like, I'm really serious. How are you doing? And for the first time, leaders were having these deep conversations with people about, you know, their family life, their well-being, how were they coping with their workload? <laughs> and we said to some of these leaders, but, you know, when you worked in the office, didn't you have these conversations? And they went, yeah, but I wasn't really interested in the answer because <laughs> you know, it's like I see Dan in the hall and I go, hey, Dan, just checking in, mate. Like, how are you doing? And Dan goes, I'm fine. And I go, great, and keep walking. And that was – so, I mean, this belonging piece is so, so important. Yeah. God, we're sol- solving the problems of the world here. Well, I don't, well if we do that, that yeah, that'll be good. But <laughs> we're, certainly, we're certainly bringing them up. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, um, I, I wanted to just round out um, our chat with um, – just to touch on something you mentioned uh, some of the research and, and uh, big interventions you're doing around uh, burnout yep. in professional services um, burnout again um, is I, th- I think it's be whether it's how do I frame it it's I think it's more front of mind um, than it has been or certainly than I've been aware of uh, before yep. uh, the past 12 24 months I think it's um, something that Again, not just in the education space, but as you spoke about in the professional services um, space as well. Um, when it comes to burnout, I, I'm, I'm keen to hear a couple of things, really. One is what's the definition of it? What's the difference between that and just being, I'm just exhausted, yeah. right? I'm just tired. Um, and again, maybe not dissimilar to how we've touched on the idea of striving. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you're noticing around the individual um 
the individual's role or need for awareness and then the organization's need for awareness and perhaps intervention in that space. Oh, man, it's like we're connected because as you were asking that question, I thought to myself, the first thing we have to understand is what is the definition of it? And burnout's actually a really complex condition and it's not just being tired. So burnout has three dimensions to it. The first is emotional or physical exhaustion, which is the one we think of. The second one is a feeling of like futility that what I do doesn't matter or I can't make an impact or uh, things won't change. So that's the second part. And the third part is withdrawal and cynicism and depersonalization. And this is where we start to withdraw into ourselves. We become cynical about our coworkers. We become, if you think of a school context, we're very cynical about the parents or the department or society. And, And we start to like dehumanize people. So they're the three parts of burnout and that's something we've got to understand is fatigue is fatigue. Burnout is a different thing. It's part of burnout but it's not the whole uh, picture. And unfortunately, one of the benefits of having a a science and a research background is I find organisations and, you know, departments and governments say, oh, 75% of our people are burnt out. I'm like, well, how did you measure that? Oh, we asked them, are you burnt out? I'm like, like, what? You asked them one question and it's, what, are you burnt out? I said, that doesn't measure burnout. <laughs> so they've like, you know, there's a whole science to creating surveys that actually measure the, the thing, you know, does it actually measure what you're trying to measure? And yeah. the problem with that question is it depends on that person's definition of burnout, how they feel in that moment. So there's burnout diagnostic diagnostics which you know have been validated in research that can measure burnout and so you just got to make sure you're using the right tool to measure the outcome that you want so but yeah I mean look burnout is very much front of mind Um, we're definitely seeing higher rates in it we're seeing higher rates in fatigue but burnout is a whole you know, it has those multi-dimensions. Now, obviously, when it comes to burnout, fatigue, well-being, you can't underestimate how important the individual is. They are absolutely critical. Uh, they have so much power. They and, and one thing about Flourish is what we focus on is what are the things you can control? Yeah. And we can do so much. But at the same time, and this goes back to kind of the th- theme of the environment and how important the environment is you know are your systems good like do they make sense are they do they make their job easier Uh, a friend of mine's doing research within the police force and she showed that you know the two biggest contributors to stress are the horrible things they see but also equally the frustrations they have around how they have to work and their systems and technology and reporting. So, you know, the organization's just got to look at it and go, do we make it easy for these people to do their job? Like, is our finance system effective? Is our So that's a huge part of it as well. But also, you know, you think about that second dimension of I don't feel like I make a difference. 
as leaders, are we celebrating people's evolution? Are we pointing out to them how they're getting better? Are we showing them how they make an impact? So well-being is a group sport or, or, or prevention of burnouts a group sport. The individuals involved, but also the organization. Oh, actually, I read this cool thing the other day, right? So if you look at people who have gone through an environmental disaster, so say they've had a flood, they've had a fire, and they've lost all their stuff. And I've asked this to about four or five groups, and I said to them, all right, if you go through something like that, what is the thing that determines how quickly your well-being bounces back. So if, if you've gone through something terrible like that, what is the one factor that is the most important in helping you bounce back? And most people go attitude, resilience, um, you know, taking responsibility, all this stuff. What the research shows, how quickly the insurance company pays them. <laughs> like, right. It's admin. Admin is yeah. the thing that affects their well-being the most. Like do the insurance companies cough it up? Or do they take three years and drag it out? So yeah. so my big thing about burnout is, yeah, an individual plays a role, but the organization and the system does massively too. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Adam. And um, if people want to uh, get hold of your books, um, learn more about your work, perhaps join the – if they're a school leader, they want to get involved with the Flourish uh, program, what's the – What's the best way to uh, find all things you So, know? you know, my website's dradamfraser.com. Uh, the Flourish Movement website is theflourishmovement.com.au. Actually, I think that's right. I haven't looked at my own website for a while. Um, I'll but check. If you just, I'll check before I put it in the yeah, show yeah. notes. <laughs> yeah, but if you just, you know, search for the Flourish Movement, uh, yeah. it comes up. You know, we've also started a podcast with the Flourish Movement, which is just – we get uh, what we found is every school leader has something they're amazing at and we get them to come on and in 30 minutes they teach that skill. So it's like 30 minutes, teach us the thing that is your superpower and give us really tangible things to do that. So, yeah, there's multiple resources out there. But, um, yeah, if you want to join Flourish, uh, contact us through the website. We'd love to have a chat. The links to Adam's website and the Flourish Movement are in the show notes. And as we always say, if you found that conversation worthwhile, then there is a fair chance that someone you know would also find it worthwhile. So please feel free to share this as far and as wide as you can. And while we've got you, why not take a moment just to leave us a review, perhaps a five-star rating, and officially like the podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast. And of course, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe. Now, if you're interested in the work that we do here at Cut Through Coaching, or perhaps you've got a suggestion for a guest that you think would make a great guest for the podcast, or perhaps you've got a question that you would like us to tackle in an upcoming Q&A episode, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page there. Thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Until our next episode, take care, take it easy.